I don't intend to preach on the reading from Isaiah, but I, I was listening to it and it just occurred to me, Isaiah in various places has this propensity to uh, give names to, your people will now be called, land will be called married. And, and my Old Testament professor in seminary used to say, how would you like to run in to Isaiah on the street with his two sons? And uh, you, you're, you're there, and he said, I'd like you to meet my oldest son, a remnant shall remain. <laughs> and here is my younger son, not my people. <laughs> you think some kids get saddled with names these days, right? Holy. Anyway. This is the second Sunday uh, after Epiphany. We're in a period of Sundays in ordinary time after Christmas Epiphany, but the theme of Epiphany in some ways, even though the green Sundays throughout the year, the long green season, and now this short uh, Sundays in ordinary time, continue to be about the nature, the cost, and the ways and means of Christian discipleship. How do we put into our hands the promises of God? How do we become the reflections and transparencies of God's grace and love that we're called to be? But the theme of manifestation, the manifestation of Christ, the presence of Christ to the world, the universal significance of that that is commemorated on Epiphany also remains part of the celebrations this time of year. And so in my sermon, I thought I'd preach on the reading from 1 Corinthians, which is about the use of gifts, the way, ways and means that you and I can use to uh, be, the, be what God wants us to be. And then the reading from the gospel, the wedding scene at Cana, which says some things also to us about the humanity of Jesus, the humanity of Christ, about God's abundant life, about the sacramental life of the church, and its importance moving forward as we move into some Solomon holy times in the church year uh, not too far from now. There's also, I will talk about, the section in the gospel where Jesus speaks rather sharply to his mother. So here's the situation on the ground in Corinth. I've said many times to you before, the Corinthian church was the church in the New Testament that was absolutely on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. The New Testament example par excellence, right? And it was a diverse congregation many views about what it means to be uh, a faithful Christian. I suppose that's true now in any congregation of Christian people in our culture. Don't you think we all have various views about that? I never ask any of you, for example, whether you believe in reincarnation. I don't want you to give me the answer. Please don't. <laughs> I remember years ago taking a class from the well-known Episcopal priest and Jungian analyst named uh, Sanford, who uh, 
was asked, it was a class on dreams up at the Pacific School of Religion, and someone said, do you think that reincarnation is true? And he looked at him and said, I hope not. <laughs> so Dems my sentiments. So here's the thing. We used to study these Pauline epistles, and to some degree still do from the standpoint of them being like a theological treatise. But I think we forget that most of them really are responses to real pastoral situations on the ground. Paul's away from these congregations. Like Romans is a bit of a different deal, but he's away from Corinth, and somebody has communicated to him, not with an instant message, but some communication that has said there's, you know, tension or difficulty or disagreement. And here's what the disagreement is in this particular case that prompts his desire to speak about the plural gifts that each of us receive as the result from God's spirit and that God is the source and origin of all of the talents and abilities we have in all of their diversity. There were a group of Christians in Corinth um, now we might call them usefully Gnostic Christians, but there were other kinds, no doubt, who said, here are the spiritual gifts that are the most important. And for them, this particular group, the spiritual gifts had to do with the speaking in tongues and the interpretation of these ecstatic utterances by somebody who has this gift of prophecy, as opposed to somebody prophesying in, in the ordinary language you and I understand, therefore you can do your own interpretation about whether or not this happens to be true or not. In any case, they believed that this was the superior form of spiritual development, and if you reflected these qualities and traits, you were in somehow the upper echelon of Christian faith and life. And you know, as the New Yorker cartoon many years ago, uh, with uh, several men sitting in their private club in leather chairs, smoking cigars, one turned to the other and said, you know, Al, there are no echelons like the upper echelons. <laughs> so Paul is at pains to say, you know, all of the talents and abilities and the gifts that we receive from the Spirit of God come from God, and that they are not occasions for boasting, but they are to be received with some degree of humility. And humility has a bad press, particularly in a, in a culture where there's been an over-the-moon desire to deal with issues of low self-esteem, And so we have forgotten that humility really does mean to know yourself. And that means to know your limits. And it also means to know your talents and abilities and your willingness not to hide those under a bushel, right? That you can uh, express them in relationships and to bring health and wholeness to relationship in, in your life. So humility is being realistic about who you are. It isn't being self-deprecating. It isn't having an overweening 
uh, sense of, oh no, and you know, it's knowing yourself in this way. The other thing is that Paul is at pains here to say that the gifts that we receive through the Spirit of God are all kinds. And you hear me say to you all the time, a lot of times when we think about living the Christian faith and life, about what it means to be faithful, about all of those things, we think in far too heroic terms. I don't think we should stop thinking in heroic terms or desire to somehow reach and to grasp the promises of God, but you can do it in such a way as to forget that each of us has gifts that are of use to us in the commonplace. And for most of the time, that's where we make the spiritual progress. In the ordinary and the commonplace things in our daily lives, in our families, in our friendships, in the workplace, in our own interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states, as we learn to understand how to uh, do that and live in a, an effective and healthful way in relationship. So Paul is really speaking to everyone about big gifts and little gifts. So it's important to know that and that if you feel like you don't have any big gifts, don't worry about it. Everybody has something that God gives to them as a special gift. If you read this passage in the original language in the Greek, uh, he would say there are varieties of gifts, and the word gifts could mean distributions, which is kind of a funny word, you know. We're distributing the Spirit of God. Now we're going to learn in the wedding scene at Cana that God's distribution is uh, abundance is limitless. There is no uh, limit to it. So we don't think about this as a zero-sum game. You know, sometimes people uh, are reluctant to praise other people for their gifts and abilities because they may think that if they do that, it takes something away from their own gifts and abilities. Or there's kind of a zero-sum game operating here where, you know, uh, you have them and somebody else doesn't. When there are plenty of gifts and abilities to go around, you know. How many times I heard as a kid from uh, some of my friend's parents or somebody saying to me later on, as I've been a, a pastor for a while now, someone saying, uh, you know, my, I, I never received much praise from my family and they told me that was because they didn't want me to get a big head. Right? Very well-meaning people do this. You know? <laughs> And it can, for some, produce a kind of soul murder uh, that is not particularly attractive. I don't want to go over the moon with this because, you know, some restraint. We all know people who have been praised to the nth by their parents and didn't deserve it for darn sure. <laughs> so that's fair to say, too, right? Where did this come from, you know? So we need to somehow strike a balance. And since we're Anglican Christians and believe in the via media, that's what we ought to do, right? The middle way to seek something about that, where we honor these gifts, big and small. And that's what Paul is seeking to do in this particular case, you know? The people who were uh, exalting these gifts uh, of, you know, exotic spiritual gifts uh, were a group of Christians 
that actually had less following than some these days would like to claim. And the reason is they clearly saw that uh, this wasn't going to go anywhere. When you're so turned inward on this kind of stuff, you can't be available to other people. And that's something we learn from this as well. In John's Gospel, this first miracle story, the wedding scene at Cana, is uh, something that is described as the first miracle that Jesus performed. So I'm taking a risk and going to give you some 3995 biblical scholarship that may or may not be of any use to you at all. Uh, I would guess that uh, a large number of biblical scholars today and people who study the Bible in depth would tell you that um, John's gospel was produced from more than one source and that we could even say uh, there's a source of signs and wonders we call a signs source, the miracle stories. This predates the gospel in its final form. And then there's a series of sayings that come from another tradition within this. And if you read John's Gospel, don't you? Jesus is performing these miracles, and then he's making an extended commentary on who he is, why he did it, what it's all about. So it was important for that community, at least early on, to focus on these miracle stories as a testimony of the divinity of Jesus. But as time went on and we get the gospel in its final form, the John decides that he wants to include this because it's part of the tradition. But it also points to some other things about God's abundance, about the sacramental life of the church, baptism and the Holy Eucharist, water and wine, about Jesus' humanity, about the formation of his vocation and his own interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states, about how he comes to this. So that allows me to segue to his mother and Jesus' response. Mary says they have no wine. Jesus says, Woman, what has that to do with you or me? My hour has not yet come. There is a famous preacher and bishop in the early Christian church, the Bishop of Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom. St. John Chrysostom means golden mouth, and he was given that later. He was apparently a very great preacher. And he preached a sermon on the wedding scene at Cana. And in those days, there's still some preaching that, that where you go through it line by line and expository, you know, what it means. So St. John Chrysostom said when it came to, woman, what is that to do with you or me? John Chrysostom said, at that moment, our Lord released his mother from a tyrannous affection. What it really is about is what we do as, as children with our parents sometimes too, or even younger people. We say, no, I'm not going to do that, and then you go ahead and do it, right? That's what happened here. 
Now, a biblical interpreter would say this is a story in John's gospel about Jesus thinking about his vocational life, believing this is not time for me to respond to any of the messianic, thing, messianic things that, have, I, that he's been called to, any of the things that are going to sort of foretell what is ahead for him, right? And as he's doing this, he's thinking about it, just like every human being. Father Thomas Keating, in his book, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience, says Jesus did not merely assume a human body and soul. He assumed the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. By taking the human condition upon himself, Jesus introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God consciousness. Now that's fancy language for saying this. Jesus brings in his own life the struggle that every human being has with the three energy centers that Father Keating describes in his books about the source of our tension and the areas where we need to be uh, matured as we live. And there are three areas that he always describes as part of this instinctual human nature. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. All of those things are part of the human character. All of those things need to be faced because they are part of who we are. All of them have a necessary aspect that we need to use and understand, and all of us can get carried away with this and become anxious and nervous and worried. You and I need to be concerned about security and survival and to take care of ourselves. We need to have the right kind of self-regard. We need to look after the people we're responsible for. But you also know that it is possible to have an overweening sense and worry about security and survival where you are prevented from functioning at a healthy level. All of us want affection and esteem. We seek it and we deserve it. And yet at the same time, we have often, all of us, looked for that in all the wrong places. feeding the hole, right, that's inside. So affection and esteem. Sometimes, you know, it's important, I mentioned this earlier, that we uh, be willing to uh, uh, give people strokes. You know, it won't hurt, and it won't take anything away from you to uh, tell somebody that they've done something well when they, in fact, have done it. And power and control ought to be a, an obvious thing. And all of us know that tyranny can be both huge and have global significance. And there are all kinds of petty tyranny involved in family life, ordinary relationships, the workplace, that have absolutely no life-giving or healthful effect whatsoever. 
And you and I should be against that. My morals and ethics professor would have said, I pray against it on a daily basis. And yet, you and I are called those who are vested with, in positions of leadership to use power and control in a way that is helpful and life-giving and not shy away from the responsibilities and the opportunities that it provides. So all these things are very easy to say and hard to do. But to me, when I read the wedding scene at Cana, I think about this because I think it's, a, it's an affirmation of the humanity of Christ in a way that leads me to think off in this kind of uh, way. The other thing that's part of this gospel is that the default position for Christian people is the belief in God's abundance. Saint Jerome, the translator of the Vulgate Bible, the Latin Bible, many back in the fifth century. Saint Jerome, by the way, was as Sam Golden of Metro Golden Mare would have said in two words, impossible. <laughs> Saint Jerome was asked when this passage was being read uh, by somebody, uh, do you think the people at the wedding drank all that wine? He said, no, we're still drinking it. <laughs> and what he meant by that, of course, was that it is not a celebration of too much wine. It's a celebration of the spirit of life. This may surprise you, but I learned this in seminary from my great friend, Lewis Weil, the professor of liturgy. The reason we use wine at the Eucharist is because it has the spirit in it may sound kind of funny, you know, but it's true. So this is something about the spirit of God. It's something about baptism. It's something about prefiguring what's going to happen to Jesus on the cross where out of his side comes water and wine in the story. So it's a powerful story about the beginning of how we move now on this pilgrimage towards understanding the nature the cost and the ways and means of Christian discipleship and the role that you and I play in making that manifest to the world. For the community out of which John's gospel emerged, they firmly believed that they were continuing the work of the Savior that he promised them they would do and even greater works than he did. And so when they listened to him and they saw his signs and wonders and believed in him, they didn't think of it, oh, well, that's done. Now he's not here. They said, we have been given tools that we can use. We've been given a way to move forward. We've been given a way to embrace and hold fast our humanity that God made and called good. And so on the second Sunday after Epiphany, that's what we affirm when we read the gospel about the wedding scene at Cana. This week, think about all your wonderful gifts See if you have an opportunity to use them in big and small ways in relationship. Be grateful for being the recipient of the gifts of others in the way that helps you and builds you up and gives you some support uh, in the midst of difficult circumstances. And know also that the default position for Christian people is just like this gospel story. 